Welcome to the Mindfulness in Medicine podcast, a podcast where we explore the role of mindfulness and related topics in medicine, created and produced by medical learners at McGill University. Hello, everyone. My name is Zoe, and I am a fourth-year medical student. I am joined today by my colleague, Rachel Zimmer, another fourth-year medical student at McGill. We are excited to introduce Dr. Sanjeet Singh Saluja, an emergency room physician who splits his time between urgent care and sports medicine and is a provider for medical aid in dying. Dr. Singh completed his undergraduate medical training at McGill and went on to complete his residency in family medicine with a plus one in emergency here at McGill as well. He has since worked at St. Mary's Emerge in the ICU, in Pavernatuk doing Northern Medicine and in Sports Medicine. He continues to be heavily involved in the residency training program and was once chief of the emergency medicine at the MUHC as well. Outside of medicine, Dr. Singh is a lover of sports, including soccer, football, and kayaking, an avid gym goer, and passionate about spending time with his family. Thank you so much, Dr. Singh, and welcome. Thank you. Hi, Dr. Singh. So it's very nice to meet you. I have a question that we like to ask our guests, and it's very pertinent for us as fourth-year medical students. What is the best piece of advice you received as a trainee? There were two pieces of advice that were really, really good. First of all, don't close your doors, you know, always keep your mind open. When I first started, I was doing five, six things all at once. Uh, that was a lot, but it gave me that opportunity to say, I like this. I don't like that. And I really was able to focus my training and my practice accordingly. So I'm happy with what I do. If you close your doors and you just get focused on one thing, it's, you sort of miss out on the good things that are out there, kind of like made. And the second thing is my mentor taught me this. He said, you know, no matter how good you are and no matter how advanced you think you are right now, at some point in medicine, you will become obsolete. And the only place where you're not going to be obsolete is with your family and friends. So put your focus there. And as long as your family and friends are happy, you should be happy too. That's really nice to hear. And I think even by Zoe's introduction, it sounds like you have a lot of parts to you outside of medicine that probably focus more on family and friends as well. Um, can I ask, just because there's our class, we have some students who went into clerkship already knowing what they wanted and others who sort of found their place as they went along. Did you know right away that you wanted emergency medicine or what initially drew you to that specialty? No, actually, I wanted to do orthopedics. So my undergraduate was in uh, occupational therapy and it was very ortho related. And then when I started doing clerkship, I sort of found interest in a lot of things. And that's what drew me to family medicine slash emergency medicine, where you're a master of all trades in emergency medicine. And every shift you come into, it's not, you're not going to be seeing the same thing every day. And that's what excites me about my job. At this point in your career, do you still feel like each day is still very different? Absolutely. I don't go into a shift seeing the same things. I, I come home from every shift with something to read because there's always something I didn't know. And that's what I love about emergency medicine. It's really a passion of mine. That's really nice to hear. I guess I haven't done my emergency medicine rotation yet, but when I think of emergency medicine, I do think of very broad and very fast paced. And then when I think more of palliative care, which I know Zoe has done, I, I think of a slower pace and something that maybe takes a bit more time with each patient. So can I ask you, how did you go from being interested in emergency medicine to then getting involved with MAID? 
That's a multifaceted question right there. I became involved with MADE specifically because while I was associate chief, one of the guys that I loved to death, uh, Tom Maniatis, needed people to do MADE. And since uh, emergency doctors have a knowledge base around the medications that we give, uh, he asked, he asked me to ask my colleagues if anybody would like to volunteer. When I approached the group, there were some people who were very vocally against it and said they felt that MADE was against the principles of emergency medicine. And I took offense to it a little bit, but at the same time, it made me realize that if I'm going to ask the people who work with me to do something, I should at least try it. I was the first emergency doctor to step forward because, you know, I, I want to set an example. And thirdly, I personally went through a couple of people in my life who went through the end stage of dying and I saw the impact not only on them but also the impact that it had on their families where one of my friends was dying of cancer and you can see every single day he would have preferred to have died on his terms and so uh, that's what sort of drove me was the personal experience and that's why I continue doing it. Thank you for sharing that. I'm really sorry about your friend passing. I would imagine that uh, as MADE had just started out, it was probably, like you said, not something that was very um, commonly practiced among emergency docs and, and all doctors in general. Do you feel like after you started doing it, it became a little bit more popularized amongst emergency doctors or it's still somewhat taboo? It really depends on the person. A lot of people have certain misconceptions and certain feelings about it. Some people have religious comments against it, and that's fair. You know, you're allowed to have your own opinions. You're allowed to have your own feelings. I think that there are more and more emergency physicians. I, I know that there are four of us so far who have found interest and, and they want to try. And, and so that's, it's good and it's promising. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm not surprised that there was a bit of pushback by lots of physicians because I think, you know, when we think about MADE, and I'll just say, because we started using this acronym MADE, it's Medical Assistance in Dying for those who are listening. Not everyone even knows what that really entails and what that means. So do you mind kind of providing a bit of a definition for future providers, whether they're actually going to be providing MADE themselves or they're going to be, you know, taking part in discussions with patients or their colleagues about it. I think it's nice to have a serviceable definition of it. How do you describe it to patients or your colleagues? Well, the way I look at it, there's, there's the official definition for me. It's uh, there's two types of patients. There are those who are considered track two where they have a foreseeable illness that may prolong and they do not want to reach that endpoint in the way that it's expected. So for example, uh, somebody who has a neurodegenerative disease and, and those things and conditions like that. And then there are those people who are actively dying within the next three months and they're considered track one. And so those are the, those are the people who would get it in a more immediate basis. Medical assistance in dying for me is attaining control over the uncontrollable. We're all going to die. It's just the way that it's going to happen. And for some people, it's more painful and more debilitating than others. For some people, it's the pain that they're going to experience. Some people, it's the psychological pain where 
you know, they can't do the things that they would want to do or the activities of daily living that give them pleasure, whether it's being with their dogs or walking their dog every morning. And each person is individual. So I think we have to sort of get made as a chance for them to control what is being, being taken away from them. Yeah, I really like that definition. It definitely rings true in terms of what I saw on palliative care, the suffering that can accompany loss of control, loss of autonomy. And actually, while I was there, I learned a little bit about some of the things that we can do to give patients that sense of control back, like even asking permission to talk about things is a technique, asking permission to give information. So there's always this sense of making sure the patients have as much autonomy as possible. And obviously, MAID is taking that one step further by giving people control over, like you said, something that the uncontrollable. So that's really a useful way, I think, to talk about it with patients and with people too, especially for whom there might be a little bit of uh, pushback or a little bit of discomfort with MAID, which I think is so normal and natural. I think discomfort with MAID is to be expected and almost like should be um, part of the, the, our conversation about it. Just as a point of clarification about track one and track two that we didn't make as clear while we were doing this recording, Track one and track two in Quebec are really determined by something called vital prognosis. In Quebec, natural death is considered reasonably foreseeable if the vital prognosis of a patient is 12 months or less, and exceptionally 18 months. Track one would include patients that have a vital prognosis of less than 18 months. These patients don't have to wait any period of time between requesting MAID and the date that they would like MAID to be provided. A waiver of final consent can actually be signed by these patients in advance. Track 2 refers to patients who have a vital prognosis of more than 18 months. These patients have to wait a minimum of three months between the date of the first evaluation for MAID and then the date that they'll actually undergo MAID. Additionally, for these particular patients who are considered Track 2, one of two doctors who are assessing them for eligibility has to have expertise in the disease that's causing suffering. And those two doctors need to, who are assessing the patient for eligibility need to agree that the patient has explored alternative options to relieve their suffering. There's no option in Track 2 for patients to waive their final consent. That kind of brings me to my next question. There are certain myths, misconceptions about made both amongst family members of patients and also amongst people in medicine. Are there any that you think are particularly important that should be dispelled and that maybe students or a year for us residents can help to, to dispel in our conversations with patients and their families? One of the things that I think a lot of people think about made as assisted suicide. And in my mind, I don't believe it's assisted suicide in the sense that you have to be taking away a life. And for a lot of these people, they don't feel they have lives. I've had people tell me, you know, I used to be able to go for dinner with my family for my wellness. I used to be able to go see my family, go travel. And for them, even though they're functional in the sense that they can move from a chair to a bed, they can't do all the things that give them pleasure in life. And so without pleasure, what kind of life do you have? So I don't see made as assisted suicide. I see it's assistance in death. That's the biggest misconception. A lot of family members feel 
you know, you're being taken away from your family, but I, it goes back to, again, the definition of life. How much are they with you, really, if they're just lying in bed all day, if they're stuck in a hospital or in hospice care, or they get a visit one hour a day from their family members? And then you, you have to ask the question, who am I doing this for? I'm doing this for the patient. I'm doing this not only for the patient, but I'm also doing it for the family because my family and I lived through this where, you know, for four or five months, daily hospital visits, this wasn't a life for that person. It was, it was basically close to death. And you're giving them a peaceful death, a peaceful transition to that period where we're all going to be going through that. Thank you so much for sharing that. Watching a loved one go through what can be the undignified process of dying is so difficult. And this is just one thing that we can offer as physicians in order to try and ease that process if that's something that a patient or a family wants. When you are called to, to see a patient and assess them for, for medical assistance in dying, how do you approach that assessment? What are the things that you're thinking about? How do you prepare for it? What does that process look like for you? Well, the way I see it, first of all, I see a lot of patients have a lot of anxiety related to this because they feel like they need to qualify. They need, and to some extent they do, but they feel they need to convince me that they deserve it. And I always come in and I always say, well, first of all, this is your choice. I'm a vessel for you to attain that goal. So it's not whether I decide yes or no, it's do you really want it? I always make it a point to know the patient well beforehand in terms of their condition, their diagnosis, uh, whether they do meet track one or track two. That helps the patient. It shows that you have a little bit of familiarity with them. And the reason I also do that is because I want to focus my discussion with them, not on their condition. Because when I ask, I always start off the, the conversation with, who are you? And they always tend to tell me about, oh, I have cancer. I have this cancer. I have this nerve. And then I stop them and I say, that is not the question. Your cancer or your neurodegenerative disease is your diagnosis. Who are you? And that's the most important part. So before I walk in, I want to make sure that the patient knows that I'm not there clinically, specifically, I'm more there to get to know them before they do that. And so that's what I do. That's my preparation before I do that. Just to kind of get an example of exactly what it, it's like to go through the meat assessment, can you think of a difficult meat assessment that you recently did and what it taught you as a physician? I've had one or two cases where because of technicalities that the patient has not been able to be eligible. For example, before the assessment or during the initial assessment and at the time of the of made, you need to be cognizant and you need to be have your all, all your capacities. And while this person would have qualified for made, um, they had unfortunately fallen into delirium beforehand. So a lot of people look at this as like you can take your time with all these cases, but the truth is, in some cases, you need to be diligent. You need to be, it's a time, it's, it's, it's a time sensitive nature. So that's one thing that I learned in the sense that it's not something that can be, I can wait too long. You have to keep that in mind. Those were more difficult. And even though the family was very eager for this and, and knew that that's what the patient wanted, we had to say no. Uh, so it's just something that we have to keep in mind. And that's one of the things that some people don't also realize about me that that 
made is not something that can just happen tomorrow. There's a lot of loopholes and bureaucratic due diligence that has to be done before we get to that point. So that's one of the things that a lot of family members are quite concerned of is that this is a spur of the moment decision, but rather it's actually become quite a stringent process that we have to meet the criteria. Yeah, I'm so glad that you mentioned that because it was one of the things that I hoped that we would mention because this was actually something that I saw while I was on palliative with a family that had decided that they were interested in medical assistance and dying, but very, very quickly the patient deteriorated and became ineligible, unfortunately. And there was so much frustration, I think, on the part of the family and I sense on the part of the patient too, understandably, but there is this sense that made is almost on demand, but it's really not. There's quite a lot of days that might lapse between the moment that a patient and a family decide that this is what they want and when the actual process happens. And as fast as we, you know, we work, it doesn't always necessarily align with what happens with the patient. It was a really difficult situation, but I think an important thing for people to keep in mind not only uh, as clinicians, but also family members too, things can change. And unfortunately, there are these things in place and they're really for protecting the patient and protecting this process, but it can still be met with a lot of frustration. And that is always super hard when you're the provider. That's the last thing that you want at that moment is to not be able to fulfill the wishes of a patient or their families. It's a really tricky situation, but I'm glad that you you mentioned it because I think it's important. It's also, it's also important that the patients realize also that there are other options out there. You know, uh, you have palliative sedation, you have palliation where, you know, you control your pain and you control the quality in which the patient attains that final end goal. Uh, I think they all have their point. And with my friend who died, he had a great palliative team with who really took care of him. And they really made his final days quite peaceful compared to the last two weeks of his life where he was constantly in pain, you know, uh, I think this is one thing that a lot of patients think that they have to get made, but made is one option of many that are there for those, these patients. Yeah, I wasn't even aware of deep palliative sedation, actually, until I just did this elective. And there were so many important things that I learned about it. But one of them is that it doesn't hasten death. It can really be likened to uh, shutting off consciousness for the patient such that they're really feeling no pain, even though I think you have to tell families that it it can be a difficult process because they're still like have to go through the physical process of, of dying. But you can save them a lot of suffering by going with that option. That was something I only learned about uh, on this rotation most recently. So I guess having not had the experience of going through the palliative care elective yet, I was just wondering from both of you, how do you explain to families that contrast between maid versus palliative sedation? Because the way I think of it is while it's still extremely hard for the patient to go through this process, I would imagine that the family also wants to be able to say goodbye towards the end. And when I think more of palliative sedation, I think, yes, you're you're turning off that consciousness towards the end, but it's also hard for the family to be able to communicate with the patient as opposed to made, which I think of more um, immediate towards the end. So, I mean, that is a good question, but let's realize that oftentimes when the patients are in delirium, they 
they're not somebody you communicate with anyways. They're just in pain and they're in more frustration because they can't communicate and they can't. And so there's a lot of frustration and angst that happens there. You know, while made is an immediate, it's what people tend to want in terms of we can schedule our time and we can set it up and we, we can say our goodbyes. But in reality, as we can attest to on palliative care, oftentimes patients are in just so much pain that they can't really they can't really say their goodbye. And even if they're saying your goodbye, how much is the patient really attaining? There's that fine balance that needs to be discussed and needs to be sort of kept in mind. Uh, but palliative sedation is, uh, is something that can provide a lot of help for the family in the sense that they have that time to process that their friend or their family member is dying without them actually dying. And it does help a little bit. Okay, thank you for, for clarifying that for me. And we sort of touched on this a little bit earlier about sort of dispelling some of the myths around MAID and how certain faiths might not be willing to accept MAID if they do perceive it as being assisted suicide. So I was just wondering if you can touch on how you view MAID in light of your own faith, if you're comfortable explaining that to us. So I had some concerns originally. I, I'm not totally well-versed in Sikhism, I, I practiced and, but you know, I, I do fear that there is some conflictual aspects of this. But when I spoke to my father about this, he had the best line. He says, your job as a doctor is to alleviate suffering. And so I look at it that way where people are in pain, people are suffering. My job is to help that. You know, it might go against my religion, but my personal belief is that my face would be okay with that as long as I'm doing it properly. Just gave me goosebumps hearing you say that. That's a really beautiful way to put it. And I'm wondering, do you have any rituals or things that you do before or after you administer medical assistance in dying that helps you with this process? And a big part of what we do on our team is thinking about medical student wellness and how we stay well and provide care. So in that light, is there anything that you do to help yourself in this process? For me, I tend to either have a maid scheduled before or after the gym. So it's for that hour and a half after I'm focused on something else rather than that. And that's my coping method. Some people like to sit and contemplate and discuss and talk about their feelings. I'm not built that way. For me, it's just, okay, I did this part of my day. I'm moving on to the next part. For me, it works. For others, uh, it's different, but that's just what works for me. That's really good practical advice. I actually find that getting physical exercise for me is the way that I like to air things out in general. I'm glad to hear that it also works in, in this particular context as well. We touched on this a little bit when we were talking about your bio, but what else do you do in your life to stay well and be able to provide the best care to patients? Well, for me, it depends on the day. A lot of it is basically being with my family. My family is the most important part to me. And if I can spend the day with my family, that's great. Uh, then there are some days where I don't want to be with anybody. And that means I'm going to go and I'll get on the kayak and I'll put my music on or I'll go to the gym and I'll just do 
<clears throat> something that's not medical. And I think the big thing that gives me my real wellness is the fact that I'm one of those guys who looks at medicine as this is what I do. Uh, this is not who I am. So a large portion of my day is spent with non-medical people. I go to the gym who with non-doctors and we talk about stuff other than medicine. On occasion, they'll ask me for free medical advice, which is the perk of being with the doctor. But for me, even though I love reading medical journals in my off time and hearing podcasts about emergency medicine in my off time, the thing that gives me wellness is that I walk away from my job and I make that an aspect of my life while the other aspects don't intertwine. Yeah, I feel like you have to be pretty intentional about creating that divide. I'm still a trainee, I'm still a student, and I'm still learning how to do that. But sometimes I find that it can be quite easy to get a bit taken away by it all. So let's be very clear. I mean, I was not always what you would call well. You know, I used to work 24 just a month because that's all I knew. Average emergency doctor does 12. I used to do 24. And after my first two years of practice, I was pretty close to burnout. I had to actually take a step back and look at other things. There's a portion of my life in the first three years of my practice where I felt guilt doing other things because so much of me was, if I'm not at the hospital, I'm not useful. With age and with a little bit of gray hair, you sort of realize that that's not the way to go. And the people who I've seen burn out or who are pretty close to burning out are the people where their profession has become so much of a definition of who they are. It was only when I sort of grew up and I realized that this isn't who I am. This is my job. This is my passion. But it's one aspect of what I can be. It's only when I met, you know, the significant people in my life where I realized that the most important things are not the shifts that I do, but what I do outside of those shifts. And that comes with time. And again, there are some people who just love talking about being a doctor and and that's, and it's such a big part of their lives and they get solace from that. That's great for you. Everybody has their own balance and everybody has to make, has to find what's individual balance to them. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's a a really important takeaway. Obviously, everybody is different. Some people, like you said, can can maintain wellness and still have a lot of their identity tied up in medicine. Personally, I'm working towards creating distance because I think that's how I find my like sense of well-being. I don't know, Rachel, if you want to jump in here as well and, and say anything, but it's a work in progress. I completely agree, Zoe and, and Dr. Singh. I think for for me, I also find that I do need to create that distance, whether it's through art, whether it's through physical activity. But I think, especially still being a student, I do feel that guilt sometimes when I go out with friends and I even just for a quick bite to eat. And I feel like, should I be doing something related to medicine? You know, am I wasting time here? But I don't think that we could ever consider something for our wellness to be a waste of time. So it's important to hear that we should be maintaining, you know, those friendships and those hobbies outside of medicine as well to, to keep ourselves grounded because it, it can be all consuming. One of the best things about the pandemic was, if you can get that from there, was when I was associate chief and we were basically working, me and my colleague, uh, Carl Cernovich, we were working almost 20 hour days. We were uh, 
waking up in the morning at six o'clock. I'd be writing protocols for the different, you know, safety measures or whatever. And then we'd have meetings during the day and then I'd have a shift, in which case I'd finish at two. And then I'd be up at seven o'clock or six o'clock to do that. And so we were doing this for pretty much the entire summer. There was one point in August where Carl had forced me to leave. He said, we are going to tell everybody that you are not available. No one can contact you. And you go and you go kayaking for the day and you just don't do anything. And it was at that point where I sort of, it sort of realized like, you know, the quality of my work got so much better after that one day, because I made it a point that one day a week, I was doing that. It was a necessity. And we tend to forget this where you got to take that day or even that week or that month or whatever, how much time you need for yourself, because otherwise your quality of your work is going to, going to suffer. So if you want to be a better doctor, you need to learn to walk away and not do medicine at one point. That's such an important learning point. The quality of our care is only as good as how well we are. So we have to learn to fill up our own cup as well. Uh, I think we're in a profession where you give so much of yourself away. And if you don't take the time to, to kind of give back to yourself, then you can end up being empty, essentially, and you don't have much left to give at that point. I remember in my first year, I was covering ICU. I had a shift at St. Mary's. I was covering the Montreal, then Montreal Impact. And I was just going from one thing to the next, you know, like I would go home, sleep a little bit, get up, go to work, or I had to meet one of the players at the hospital. And then I went to my shift at St. Mary's and the internist looked at me and she goes, you look terrible. And I felt terrible. But then I realized I hadn't eaten in two days. So I was just go, 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 you know, moving constantly. I had to get an intravenous put into me because I was feeling bagel. This is one of the problems with medicine is that there's always something to do. And there's always something else you can do to help out people. But it comes to your detriment because you can see that you're not as functional. You're going to be, you're going to get sick and you're going to be off for a longer period of time. So there has to be that moment where you have to sort of do things for yourself. I was just wondering how you find you can explain it to colleagues or how they sort of react when you do take that space for yourself. When you're at the point where you do need the IV, I think it's very hard for people to say, you know, you should stay here and keep working. But what about when you just need that second for your mental well-being to take a step back when it's not necessarily something that others can see that you need? It's something that comes over time. The benefit of emergency medicine is that you do have those days off because it's so high stress in there. You, you organize yourself according to how you function. For example, I don't do more than three shifts or four shifts in a week so that I can have that mental break. Some people, it's two shifts in a row and they won't do any more. You know? So with time and with experience, you sort of learn your body, you learn your experience, you learn yourself, and you don't necessarily have to tell people you're doing that. You just, this is how I work. This is how I feel comfortable. Uh, that's where it's beneficial in emergency medicine that we have that leeway to control it. My issue are, is with people who try to impose wellness onto you. You know, you need to do this. You need to do, and like that, that's you. You feel you need to do two shifts a month, or you need to have a six hour shift, like that's fine. We need to realize that everybody's different and everybody gets their wellness in different ways. 
and not everybody has to be the same. And, and, and nowadays people are sort of realizing where, okay, you, people work differently and the only thing you can't control is yourself. Wellness is going to look different for everybody. And if it doesn't come from you intrinsically, I don't think it's going to work for you either. If you mandate that someone has to do something for their wellness, it's likely not going to make them well. No, I, I think that's so true. And even as part of our McGill curriculum, I mean, we have these wellness uh, sessions set up and sometimes they can be extremely useful, but I think it's always important to know that it does have to adapt to the needs of students, which they they do fabulously, but it's just important because not everyone gets the same substance out of those sessions because wellness really does look different to everyone. You know, like John Mulaney talked about this in his comedy where as you grow older, you know, you ask a man, well, you know, when they're younger, they say, what did you do this weekend? They're like, oh, I did nothing. And then you ask somebody in their 40s, what'd you do this weekend? They have this big smile on their face and they say, I, I did nothing. It was great. <laughs> like, I, I literally did nothing. Don't impose your wellness onto, onto other people. Just realize that for some people, your wellness activity might not be their cup of tea. It's just, it's just what it is. But every, every wellness is individual and it has to be realized. It has to be acknowledged. I think that's such a beautiful way to finish our conversation. We've spoken about so many things today. We've, you know, really open into medical assistance and dying. But then I think this discussion we've had about personal wellness and what that looks like and how it can look very different is also so valuable. So just as we kind of wrap things up here, is there anything that we didn't talk about that you think is important to mention? Rachel, if you have any final questions, then we can uh, also get to those. But I'm watching the time and realizing that this is your Sunday, and I want to make sure that you get to do all of the nothing that fills you up. <laughs> I'm very appreciative of your time, Dr. Singh. Thank you for speaking with us. Yeah, Dr. Singh, that was really awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. If there's one thing that I really want you guys to realize and, and the medical students out there to realize is well, there's two things. First of all, don't close doors. You know. Mm-hmm leave your doors open, be open to trying new things because that's where you sort of find your time. Like I look at MAID as a great opportunity that I could have missed if I had closed-mindedness, but it's actually one of the most fulfilling things in my practice because in emergency medicine, if I spend more than 10 minutes with the patient, that's too much time. And the most important thing that I've ever learned was you will be obsolete. You will not be a great physician forever but you will never be obsolete to your family to your kids to your friends they'll always need you so put your focus there don't focus so much on on being a doctor focus on being a good person this has been another episode of mindfulness in medicine a podcast created for medical learners by medical learners at mcgill university get show notes at the mindfulmedicallearner.com if you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe, comment, and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, or send us a message through the contact page on the mindfulmedicallearner.com.